Thanks, Tim. That was great, Tim. It was great. It takes a lot of guts to get up. So, Tim, thanks for having the guts. I'm grateful that we are a family and that we can use our gifts individually to praise God. No matter where we are, no matter where we're sitting, no matter where we're standing. It was, it was, that blessed my heart, Tim. Thanks. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we're studying verses 1 to 5. As I said, Paul has, is taking a break from discussion, discussing unity, and he's talking about the gospel. He's doing this, he's taking this break because our unity as brothers and sisters in Christ is based on the gospel. It's not based on anything else. It all boils down to, have we placed our faith in Jesus Christ? Do we believe he is who he says he is? If that is so, we are to be unified for his glory. If we believe that our unity is based on anything else except the gospel of Jesus Christ, we will not be unified as a church. If we don't have a true understanding of what the gospel is, we will not be unified as a church. So Paul takes this break from talking about unity to explaining the gospel. The Corinthians were caught up in their culture. They started to believe that the gospel was based on human wisdom, human power. What can I do? How can I prove myself to God? How can I work my way into his favor? And once I'm in his favor, what can I do to show everyone around me that I am the best thing since sliced bread and sliced cheese? They were all caught up in that. But Paul says that's not what it's about. The gospel is based on the wisdom and power of God. They had been caught up in what humanity can offer. Wisdom, strength, wealth, forgetting to pursue what only Christ offers. So, knowing that the gospel is not based on human wisdom or human power, but on the wisdom and power of God who provides all the things that we discussed last week, the question comes down to then, how do we relate the gospel to other people so that they know what the gospel is and where the gospel comes from that is based on God's wisdom, God's power. How do we relate the gospel? Sometimes, because of our own sin, our own depravity, our own human nature, because of the culture that we live in, we are tempted to share the gospel in a way that makes us look good or in a way that people will like us or in a way that they will look up to us. A pastor has this temptation all the time because a pastor likes to be liked. God has designed a lot of pastors to be people people because if we didn't like people, we would go hold ourselves in the office and no one would see us at all and nothing would get done. People people like to be liked. People people like to have people walk up to them and say, great sermon, you did a great job. Makes us feel good on the inside. Don't stop doing it. But there is a temptation to feed off of that and think that is what it's all about. But when we share the gospel or the truths of the Bible, we're supposed to share it in a way that people will follow God and not us. It's important to do it with that mindset because we are all sinners. Every single one of us, including myself, will do something to betray someone's trust or to hurt someone because that's who we are as people. 
Unfortunately, there have been a lot of religious Christian leaders throughout the day that forgot that concept. We could talk about Rabbi Zacharias or Mark Driscoll. We could mention Bill Gothard, Doug Phillips, Jimmy Swaggart. Some of these names you might know, some of these names you may not know. But they were all people who stood up and were teachers of the Bible. And they inspired a following. And something changed in their life. Where instead of starting to inspire a following for Christ, they started to inspire a following for themselves. And they got caught up in pride in sin and immorality and they were found out and they fell and people stopped following God. Churches shut, ministries folded because people were following a man instead of Christ. Paul wanted people to follow Jesus Christ. That was his goal. And so here in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, he reflects on his preaching, who he was when he was with the Corinthians. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Will you pray with me? Oh, Father, thank you that you are God and none of us are. Because you are perfectly holy, you are perfectly good, you are perfectly love, you are perfectly righteous, you are perfectly justice. You are perfect, and there is none other like you. Lord, thank you for giving us the ability to know you without a shadow of a doubt. We don't have to dig through mysteries because you have fully revealed what we need to know, and we can have a relationship with you and know you and be in awe of you. Lord, I ask that our awe of you would not diminish but every single day that that awe would increase, that you would be the most beautiful, lovely thing to us, and we'd want to do nothing else except bask in your glory. Lord, I ask that people around us would see that in us, that you are the most important thing in our life, and because of that, they would want to know you as well, and that they would be, oh, that they would see your glory. Lord, as I am up here, I ask that I would decrease and that you would increase. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Thanks, Father. Amen. Paul uses a lot of phrases to describe his preaching in these first five verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He uses phrases that talk about a spirit of dependence and subjection to God's authority. He's talking about weakness there. Um, but he's also saying this because his manner of preaching is very unimpressive. He was not Apollos. He was not the flashy one. He was Paul. He was the dry, logical, even-toned speaker that everyone falls asleep to in the back row. But let's talk about Paul's preaching. He talks about an emotion behind his preaching, an emotion He's not a bold preacher. Constantly throughout his epistles, Paul begs 
those who follow his teachings to pray that he would have boldness to share the truths of the gospel. Consider Ephesians chapter 6. It's famous for the armor of God. But at the end, after he talks about the armor of God in Ephesians 6, 19 to 20, Paul says, pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Paul was timid in his preaching. In sharing the gospel, his timidity was based, there was a human fear going on, but it's also based on a spirit of dependence on God instead of dependence on himself. He realized he could not do anything unless God helped him. So he talks about an emotion in this passage. He uses three words to describe his emotion. The first emotion in his preaching was weakness. 1 Corinthians 2.3 says, I came to you in weakness. This term weakness is not a term for physical weakness, as I woke up and I am weak. I cannot do this, I cannot do that. My, physically, my body is falling apart. It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a feeling of inadequacy or timidity. He's declaring to the Corinthians that he felt like he was not enough to adequately explain the gospel to them. We all can sympathize with him, though most of us probably would not picture Paul in that way. We think of him as this bold preacher standing toe-to-toe to the Pharisees and the Greek intellectuals, fire coming out of his mouth and his eyes. Paul was weak. He felt inadequate. The number one reason that people do not share the gospel is that they are afraid. Most of the time, this fear is the, is a, boils down to a feeling of inadequacy that we are not enough to share the truths with someone else. Many churches have training sessions on how to share the gospel because they want their people to feel equipped. They want their people to feel adequate to share the gospel. Our church throughout the years have had several training seminars. There have been organizations built around how do you share your faith? And there's a lot of different tools out there about how you share your faith so that people will feel adequate to share the gospel and the truths of God to those around him. But sometimes I wonder if that's correct, what we should do. Because we are never adequate. We are never adequate. Our whole faith in Jesus Christ is based on a concept that we are not adequate. Jesus died for us because we are not adequate to save ourselves. We could think about Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God demonstrates his own, own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were not adequate. Christ had to do something for us. Ephesians 2, 8 to 9. For it is by grace that you are saved through faith. And this in itself is a gift from God, not of works so that no one can boast. We cannot earn our salvation. We are not adequate. We cannot even muster up enough faith to grasp our way to God. It is all based upon God's gracious gift. Our salvation is because we're not adequate. If we think about our sanctification, our process of becoming more and more like Christ, it's nothing we do because we are not adequate to sanctify ourselves. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, Peter 1, 1 to 2, he writes to God's elect scattered throughout all these provinces who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. The Spirit does the work of sanctifying because we are not adequate. Our entire faith is based on the concept that we are not adequate. God is everything to us. As we admit our inadequacy, God's glory 
and his strength is able to shine through us. Whether it's for salvation, whether it's through sanctification, whether it's for the simple act of turning around and sharing our faith and speaking the truths of God, when we admit our inadequacy, God shines through. Paul learned this, and he wrote this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 to 10. 2 Corinthians 12, 8 to 10, he's talking about this thorn in the flesh that God has given me, him, a weakness to himself. And he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it from me, but he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest in me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. So if anyone stands up and stands shoulder to shoulder with Paul and says, I feel totally inadequate to share the gospel, that person is the one who's uniquely qualified to do it because that person will depend on God instead of themselves. Paul says that his emotion in preaching was weakness. Secondly, he says his emotion for preaching was fear, great fear. There are many things that Paul could have been scared of when he is experienced, uh, preaching to the Corinthians. He definitely experienced his fair share of persecutions in his life. He details them in his next letter that he writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 27. 2 Corinthians 11, 23 to 27, Paul says that he has worked hard. He's been in prison frequently, been flogged severely, but exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a day and a night in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked, and I could probably guarantee you that none of those times he liked it. And there could have been, because he is human, as he is looking to traveling to another town, in the back of his mind, he's wondering, what's going to happen to me now? He knew about persecutions. We know that he was actually afraid for himself when he was in Corinth. In Acts chapter 18, verses 9 to 11, he is ministering in Corinth for the first time. And some, for some reason, he's afraid. And Luke records for us that one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision and said, do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I'm with you, and no one's going to attack you and harm you. There reached a point in Corinth where he was so scared to preach the gospel and tell the truths of God that he was almost going to stop, fold everything up, and leave. But God said, don't worry. I got it. Paul was afraid. To preach the gospel. The amazing thing, as I study Paul's fear, nowhere does Paul say that his fear was a bad thing. He doesn't. Because his fear, even though he almost stopped preaching because of it, he never did. His fear never controlled him. It was there, but it never controlled him. It never stopped him from sharing the gospel. What is bad is when the fear controls us instead of the Holy Spirit of God. If the fear is there but doesn't control us, the fear is not a bad thing. The fear 
merely causes us to depend on the God who takes away fear, who gives strength through the fear, which brings us back to admitting our inadequacy so that we can depend on God. Paul himself tells Timothy, perhaps speaking from his own experience, 2 Timothy 1, 7 to 8, 2 Timothy 1, 7 to 8, for the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. It is for us to admit our fear, to vocalize it, as well as in our, our inadequacy, and depend on God to work through it. Because truthfully, the work is his, not ours. We just have to step out. The third term Paul mentions is trembling. He's talked about his weakness. He's talked about his fear. Now his trembling this word trembling is tied to fear a lot. In fact, every single time in scripture is used, it is used with the word fear. Fear is the inward emotion, trembling is the outward sign. If you think about the ladies when they're running from the tomb after they saw the angels in the empty tomb, it says that they ran with trembling and great fear. When I play the piano and sing for special music, I'm afraid. And when I play, my fingers are literally trembling when I'm playing. I have fear and trembling. So can you imagine Paul when he is standing in front of the people in Corinth? He has fear, but he also says he has trembling. His voice is shaking while he is talking to the Corinthians. Perhaps from time to time, it strengthens as he gets caught up in what he's saying, but then it goes down in trembling. Maybe he, if they had pockets back then, he shoved his hands in the pockets because his fingers were trembling. He was afraid of what people were going to do to him, how they would receive him, what they would think. Fear and trembling. We don't imagine Paul this way. We don't, but he says he was. And if he says he was, I'm going to say that's probably the truth. And when he writes it to the Corinthians, he's not writing it in a way of, you didn't know this, Corinth, but this is what I was. The wording that he is using is, Corinth, you knew this, and I'm reminding you of the fact of how I came to you in weakness, in fear, in trembling. He felt inadequate, and he showed it. And through it, he was grateful because by his weakness of emotion, God would shine through. People would follow the Messiah rather than the messenger. They weren't looking, oh, look at that great man. They were looking and saying, wow, God is amazing to be able to use him. I want that God. Paul talks about his emotion in his preaching. But not only does he talk about his emotion in his preaching, he talks about his delivery his delivery. During the time of Paul, there was a group of men, orators, traveling around from town to town. They weren't missionaries. They made their money by going and making speeches. They were called sophists. Sophists, from the Greek word wisdom. They're people who, who claimed to be wise. And they would get themselves a soapbox, stand on it, and they would just start speaking about any topic. And they, they had studied the art of speaking in such a way that people would gather around them and they would enjoy just listening to the word choice and how wise these people said and the sentence structure and how they weaved arguments inward and outward. And the, how, the better someone sounded, people, the more people would give them money. They would have their hat. You know, nowadays you go to street corners, people play their violins or their guitars and you throw money in their hat. These people, they, they had speech makers, they would go around and do this. 
Paul did not want to be tied in with these speech makers because he would do the same thing. He would go from town to town, get his soapbox, stand on it, and give his speech. But he, didn't, he wanted to say, I'm not like those people. I'm like someone else. I'm not making my money traveling around and speaking. I don't want to use tricks in order to gain followers. One man wrote this and said, the Christian proclamation does not allow for high-sounding rhetoric or display of cleverness, which could impede the gospel by putting first what pleases the audience and the personal style of the speaker. The Apostle Paul does not arrive with displays of pomp and applause because he wanted people to follow God, not him. There's two specific forms of delivery that he says that he did not trust in in his preaching. These two forms of delivery were very popular in use by these sophists. He did not trust in persuasion. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. Persuasion is about our own human wisdom, using it to force someone else to come to a specific belief system. We are in election season, the time of the cycle that I really get excited because I like politics. And I love sitting down and listening to people talk and dissecting their speeches because all of these politicians are trying to use persuasion on us to make us, because of their wisdom, or the way they craft their sentences, or the words they use, for us to come and say, wow, that person's amazing. I need to vote for him. Every single politician does it. They use persuasion. Doctors will sometimes use persuasion to get a, 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 a patient to use a specific form of treatment for various reasons. Paul does use persuasion in his teaching. He does use forms of rhetoric. He uses word plays and specific sentence structures, but he never does it to draw attention to himself. He does it to get a message across, but not for people to say, boy, that's an amazing man. He wants to draw attention to God, and he wasn't going to line his pockets by what he was saying. Do you remember the story of the man who sat on the window in Acts chapter 20? Eutychus. Paul, Luke describes it, that Paul is speaking to people and he intends to leave the next day and keeps talking until midnight. There are many lamps in the upstairs room where they were meeting and seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. And when he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul then goes and the man comes back to life. But I love how Luke describes Paul it says he's talking on and on. If someone is easy to listen to, you don't say he's talking on and on. But Paul was talking on and on, and he was boring, and Eutychus fell asleep. Aren't you glad we don't have people sit on the windows? <laughs> he wasn't concerned about how his preaching sounded or how it came across. He just wanted people to hear the truth, not be impressed by flashy speech. If we turned on a television and turned into a Christian TV station we would probably see a lot of preachers who are dependent on flashy speaking in order the, instead of the simple telling of the word of God. And fortunately, many people will start trusting in that flashy speaker rather than the God who will save. Paul refers to this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. 
2 Timothy 4, the first three, Paul says, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. This, these teachers saying what their itchy ears want to hear has to do with what they say, their theology, the watered downness, but also it has to do with how they are saying it. People saying, oh, I just want to he- listen to someone who sounds good. doesn't matter what they're saying. just want to listen to someone who sounds good. Paul did not trust in persuasion, though he used a form of it. He trusted in the God of the Bible. And he said, the God is going to bring the life change, not how I sound. He also didn't trust in wisdom. The sophists were trying to go around and impress people by what they knew. They were the ultimate one-uppers. They were the people who said, look, look how I can reason. Look at what facts I know. Look how I can press everyone. Give me money because I am awesome. And Paul wasn't concerned about people wanting to know that he was wise. Because he, remember, he had just spent a couple verses before that we studied in 1 Corinthians 1, 20 to 25, about the danger of human wisdom. He says, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of the God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Human wisdom does not save. Paul, when he was in Corinth, Paul, when he was in Corinth, was not there to prove the truths of God to people. He was not there to prove creation or to prove the inspiration of Scripture, or the literal life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He wasn't there to be an apologist in how we know apologists. Nowadays, we have people who are quote-unquote apologists, and they debate people, and their goal is to prove the truths of Scripture by human logic. And they do a great job. I take my hat off to them. But back in Paul's day, and the day of his disciples, John Arvanus and Justin Martyr. They were called a, a, apologists back then. But apologist was someone who stood up and said, you wonder why we act weird? Let me explain to you what we believe. And they would get up and say, this is what we believe. Not seeking to prove it by human logic, but just saying, this is it. Apologist was someone who spoke truth and allowed people to reason it out for themselves. Nothing against modern-day apologists, but Paul wasn't there to be that form of apologist. He was there to bring the truth of the Bible and not to prove it. Paul's focus was not on the form or the delivery of his message. His focus was on Christ, which is why he could say in 1 Corinthians 2, 1-2, So it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom, as I proclaim to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He wanted people to know Christ, that was all. Nothing was going to stop the centrality of the cross to his message. Yes, he did speak about creation. We know he did. Yes, he did speak about the inspiration of Scripture. Yes, he did speak about the literal life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and all these other things because he was teaching about Jesus. But the focus wasn't on proving. The focus was on saying, this is the truth. And everything that didn't dovetail into the message of this is the truth of the cross was going to be thrown out. Nothing was going to detract from that message. As humans, we're tempted to want to have a following. We're tempted to want to grow a church, to have more people to come in. And sometimes we are tempted 
to do things to get people to come into the door and to stay here and to do what we can to make that happen. I am flooded with emails from various organizations sharing articles with titles such as nine things to do so that a visitor will come back. Literally, there are articles like that out there that I get. I just delete them because it's all human wisdom. We're not here to grow a brand. We're not here to pack people into the pews. We're here to grow the body of Christ. It's what it is. And if someone gets saved through our ministry here at Calvary Bible Church and God leads them to go to another church, sure, I will be bummed for a couple days. But then we'll be okay because we're not here to grow a church. We're here to grow the church. We're here so that people will be enamored by Christ. So as midway application, to kind of just shake ourselves up, I need you to turn to someone next to you and say, it's not about me. Okay, that was very weak. You all do not believe that. Okay, turned and say, it's not about me. It's about him. Praise the Lord, that's what it is. That's why we follow the example of Paul, having an emotion of weakness behind our delivery and an abhorrence to trusting in human persuasion and human wisdom in our deliveries that people can know Christ and him crucified. That's what it is. Which brings us to Paul's third subject. He talks about the emotion behind his preaching. He talks about the delivery in his preaching. And then he explains his dependence during his preaching. His dependence. First, he says he is dependent on the Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, he says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Now, I'm reading from the New International Version, the NIV, and the NIV combines several words there at the end of that verse into the Spirit's power. If you have the New American Standard or the King James Version or any other version like that, it might say something similar to this, that my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. They break it out. I don't blame the NIV for combining those terms because I believe it gets at what Paul is saying, combining those terms. But for the sake of the sermon, I need to flesh out what it means that he's depending on the Spirit and power. And through that, we're going to end up basically what the NIV says. The Corinthians, in their, as, as we've talked about when we started 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the very beginning, and as we'll talk about when we get to 1 Corinthians chapters 12 and 13 and 14, the Corinthians are caught up with in a misunderstanding of the Spirit and the Spirit's role in their life. They exalt specific spiritual gifts which we discussed in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. They, they loved this feeling of wisdom. Um, they, they had, they, they had this, this, this speech and knowledge, gifts of speech and knowledge in 1 Corinthians 1 that they're, they're exalting. Um, later on in 1 Corinthians 12 and four, to 14, they're also exalting speaking in tongues and these other things. For the Corinthians to, to be controlled by the Spirit meant being able to have all these flashy spiritual gifts. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says being controlled by the Spirit has everything to do with living by the Spirit according to a Christian ethic. Of, of living in a way that people say that person shows Christ in their life. That is living by the Spirit. Paul believed that the living by the Spirit was not the, the lifting up of people, but 
it was emphasis on the Spirit's power to transform lives. He believed that the Spirit gave someone wisdom to understand and speak the things of God. He believed that the Spirit gave the strength to minister when we feel weak and inadequate. That is the work of the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit enables us to do what we are called to do. He enables us to perform the good works that God has prepared us for instead of trusting in our own wisdom and persuasion and trying to get ourselves to a place of confidence and lack of fear. Instead of changing our message and our presentation to a thing that the culture will accept, we are called to rely on the Spirit to do what we cannot do. Jesus said it this way in the context of persecution in Luke chapter 12, verses 11 to 12. Luke 12, 11 to 12, Jesus said, when you are brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. We are called to depend on the Spirit instead of ourselves. Why? Because we are inadequate. In and of ourselves, we can do nothing. We need God to work through us, and as he works through us, he is glorified, and we see the result of his work. Which brings us to the next thing, Paul depended on. He said he depended on the Spirit to do the work instead of himself. But not only did he depend on the Spirit, he depended on power. Power. Specifically, the Spirit's power. Now, this power that he's talking about is not the sign gifts of the Spirit. We do know that God healed people through Paul. He had the gift of healing. We do know that he was able to speak in different languages. God, that's his gift of the Spirit. We do know he was able to do all sorts of other things. Paul did not depend on that in his ministry. He depended on what he called a demonstration of the Spirit's power at the end of verse 4. How does the Spirit ultimately show itself across the board? It isn't through flashy gifts that he gives. The Spirit ultimately across the board, no matter who we are, no matter who is talking about the gospel or the truths of God, the way the Spirit demonstrates power is through changed lives. Changed lives. Paul is going to later describe the Corinthians, who they are in chapter 6. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 7 to 11, he says, Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, and that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul says, God changed your life. The Spirit worked. And that is what I depend on, is people seeing the Spirit work as people's lives are changed. Because when the Holy Spirit changes someone's life, others notice. An extreme example of this is in the life of some heroes of mine. Many of you know the ministry of Nate Saint and Jim Elliott. They were two missionaries back in the 1950s who went down to Ecuador because they wanted to minister to an unreached people group, uh, famously known as the Aka Indians, but actually the Wadoni people. Five men, including Nate Saint and Jim Elliott, were killed when they were trying to reach contact with these natives down in Ecuador. These natives, they were used to a spirit of revenge. Whenever they would go to another tribe and kill someone or take something, they were used to that other tribe coming back and retaliating. So when they killed these five Americans, five missionaries, they expected 
Americans to come back and retaliate. But what happened was a little bit later, Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth, and Nate Saint's sister, Rachel, and a group of other ladies came back to that tribe, and they didn't bring retaliation. Instead, they showed love. And those natives said something is different because this is not natural. And they started to accept Christ, a few at a time. And as a few people started to accept Christ, the other natives started to see something different because these Christians stopped seeking revenge. These Christians stopped their immoral lifestyle. And more natives started to accept Christ, and pretty soon an entire tribe became Christian because they saw the Spirit's power and changed lives. I love another story about John Getty, who was a pastor in Canada in the 1840s. And he said, I believe God is calling me to leave it all and go to an island in the South Sea that I cannot pronounce. But it's an island of cannibals. So he packed up his wife and his two small kids, jumped in a boat, spent two weeks on a boat getting to this island in the South Sea and starts to minister there. More than 20 crew members of a British ship had been killed and eaten just months before this young family reached this island. And they began to minister. They faced the difficulty of learning a language that had no written form, constant threat of being killed, and slowly a few converts came. Soon many more received the gospel. And Getty continued his ministry faithfully, including in translating the entire Bible into the native language. And he planted 25 churches there. 25. They kept his pulpit and they put a plaque on it. The the natives in the island, and it said when he landed in 1848. When he landed in 1848, there were no Christians here, and when he left in 1872, there were no heathen. The natives wrote that plaque. Why was that able to happen? Because people saw the work of the Spirit and changed lives. Life change is proof of the work of the Spirit. Life change is the power that Paul depended on. When I teach evangelism to teens and college students, I always tell them, share your testimony, because that is the work of God in your life. Anything else you could depend on is your own wisdom and your own persuasion. We all know we're not adequate. But if we're able to say, this is who I was before Christ, This is how I know God has saved me and this is the change he has produced in my life. Do you want that too? That is them depending on God, not ourselves. When we depend on the Holy Spirit and power, not on human persuasion, not on human wisdom, accepting our inadequacy and fear, the result is a faith in God instead of a faith in man. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 4-5, my message and my preaching We're not with wise and persuasive words, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Unfortunately, so many churches forget this. They follow a man because that man is great, maybe, maybe not, but they love him. And I know many churches, including this one, that went through church splits after a pastor retired or left because they were caught up in following a man instead of Christ. Our goal in Calvary Bible Church 
should be to present the gospel and the work of God as completely dependent on the power of God. Not in human wisdom, not in power, not in one person's teaching or one person's ministry. We should desire to follow the example of Paul and resolve to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. That's it. Because we are all sinners. Every single one of us, our thinking, our reasoning is broken. Our lives are not perfect. We should be in continually in humility, pointing everyone around us to the God who is perfect, the God who makes all things new, who does all things well, the God whose foolishness and weakness is more powerful and wise than anything humanity can offer. Last month, I asked you to write down a name where you will see it. A name of someone you will invite to our Easter services. And I hope people have written the name down. I don't expect everyone to because we're all weak and imperfect people. But if you hear this and you're like, oh, that's right, I haven't done that, that is the conviction of God on your life. Do it. I challenge you to pray for that person every single day so that you would have an opportunity to share the gospel or, or at least invite that person to our Easter services. Now, I challenge you to start praying on how you can depend on God to work through your inadequacy and fear, to teach you to rely on the demonstration of the Spirit's power in your life and in others, so that through your inadequacy and fear, through the demonstration of God on your life, a conversation will happen about Jesus and about coming to church. Now, that is a very scary thing to pray. Very scary thing to pray. I encourage you to start praying that. Write a name down and start praying that God would work through your inadequacy and work through his power to have a conversation about this person and invite them to Easter. In addition, I ask you to ask God if there is something which you are doing which is removing Christ and him crucified as the central theme of your life. If there is, whether it is sin in your life or wrong priorities or whatever it is, or something that you're just focusing on instead of Christ and him crucified. Have the humility to own it and change. Because that is our goal. Him and him crucified. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your glory. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that even though we are weak, sinful human creatures, completely inadequate, you've chosen to use us with the most amazing mission in the world to show people your glory, your goodness, and your grace. Continue to teach us to live that out. And Lord, continue to show us where we are not. I ask that you would grow your church through our ministry and that you would make us usable in that task. Thanks, Father. Amen.